everybody. Welcome to Life and Life Only. I'm absolutely delighted to have with me bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I'm sure, at nine o'clock in the morning in Japan while I'm here being sustained by caffeine at midnight in England, he said self-pityingly. I'm going to say the doyen of alternative media, James Corbett of The Corbett Report. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on, although I must admit, I don't think I will have truly made it as a podcaster until I make it on the Glass Onion podcast, but uh, one can only hope. Well, we'll negotiate, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not exactly I'm going to burst it. your bubble immediately, though, and tell you that the okay. only subject that you could conceivably have me on to really talk about in any depth, i.e. the assassination of John Lennon, I have yeah. never really gotten deeply into that subject, so I have nothing profound to say about it. But <laughs> I'm sure it is a fascinating story, but I, I, for whatever reason, I've just never done the deep dive on it. Yeah, we did one show on it, and um, we kind of came to the same conclusion that there's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but not so much hard evidence, but that's true of a lot of these things, I guess. I don't touch Paul is dead, generally, partly because it's a John Lennon podcast. But um, uh, Well, then let me bridge your two audiences, because okay. uh, I, I will just <laughs> shamelessly plug a video that I did, I believe, about a year ago, maybe a couple of years ago, called Everything I Know About Conspiracies I Learned from the Beatles. Uh, oh, wow. Of- over 40 minute conversation, I think, with my friend uh, Vinny Caggiano about Beatles conspiracy theories and their validity or silliness. Oh, can you just tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind? Yeah, uh, we went through a bunch of them, including some of the uh, what we thought were the funnest examples of zany conspiracy theories surrounding the Beatles, including um, I forget what it was called now, but there's the story of the guy who was out hiking and he hit his head and woke up in an alternative reality where the Beatles had not broken up and he got a mixtape that he somehow managed to bring back to our reality. (laughs) Everyday Chemistry, I believe, was the name of this. And uh, all it is is a mashup of the various Beatles solo work from the 70s. But he's like, no, this is the alternate reality Beatles. And it was just so stupid. I thought that was funny. But uh, we approached more serious topics as well, including... The suggestions I'm sure you've heard about the Beatles' oeuvre having been penned by uh, Adorno, mm. Theodore Adorno, and things like that. And we did a little bit of research into things like that, including what I have always thought is a fascinating story, even if you don't care about the Beatles or know anything about the Beatles. Just the, the idea that has circulated ever since 1962 that the Beatles' manager, Brian Epstein, had ginned up the charts by personally buying 10,000 mm. copies of Love Me Do, which... Mark Lewison, as uh, we were talking about before we recorded, Mm. who has written the first volume of his definitive series on the Beatles Mm. pre-1963, definitively proved that it didn't matter if Brian Epstein had bought one or a million copies of Love Me Do, that would not have affected the charts in any way, because that's not how the charts were calculated back in that time in the English press, which is a fascinating example, I think, for people to understand that what you don't know about something can drastically change your perception of how real or or uh, likely something is in a way that once you learn about it, you go, oh, oh, I see. Well, that doesn't make any difference whatsoever. But before you learn about it, you're, you might uh, fall for th- that type of argument. And in a way, that's kind of the root of all the work that I do is trying to show people that there may be excluded terms that actually affect what they may believe about the world. Yeah, well, I've warmed you immediately with your knowledge of the Beatles. I did know that you'd done a couple of shows, but uh, you know about Mark Lewis and everything. Tune in. When is he going to come out with a volume two? That's a, yeah, that's a conversation for 2037. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we might have to keep him alive in a few years. <laughs> oh, he's, he's reasonably youthful. Anyway, so for today's show, I just want to tell you a little bit about the podcast. So it's, it's called Life and Life Only. The, the title actually comes from a Bob Dylan lyric, but it's not a podcast about Bob Dylan. 
And what I'm really trying to do, it's a search for truth. And I know truth is a can be a bit of a quagmire at times, but the podcast basically has two strands, inner truth, which is um, psychology, life coaching, self-development, that kind of thing. And then outer truth, which is the alternative media, which is where people such as yourself would come in. And really psychology bridges those two. I'd like to get into some of that stuff today, but I would like to take you back. Uh, I hope this isn't too formulaic a question, but there must have been a time when you, like myself and many others, consumed mainstream media fairly unquestioningly. Tell me if that's wrong, but what was the point where you perhaps started to question official narratives, if you can pinpoint that at all? That's an interesting question because my standard story, my origin story, as it were, which I think Mm. everyone in the conspiracy realist space or whatever you want to call it probably gets asked endlessly. It's how did you get into this? And Mm. so my standard story involves me moving into a new apartment here in Japan. I live in Japan, have since 2004. And in 2006, I moved into a new apartment that happened to come with an internet connection. And that was the first time in several years that I'd had the internet in my home. And in those several years, I'd been going to internet cafes and downloading emails and things like that, but I hadn't had regular internet access. So when I came online in 2006 and suddenly there were these new things like Google video and YouTube and other ways of sharing and and accessing information like that. So I immediately, just someone who's always been interested in politics and what's going on in the world, I gravitated towards watching documentaries and or back at that time, it was the Wild West of YouTube. So I I would watch The Daily Show, Colbert Report, that kind of thing, because it was all up for free on YouTube. So I was watching that sort of content, but I would consistently get recommendations for 9-11 truth related things and things like that, which I immediately dismissed because I thought that was ridiculous. Even at that time, I realized that there were conspiracies and Lee Harvey Oswald likely was not a lone nut and things along those lines. But I thought 9-11 truth, that's ridiculous. That strays too far. Nevertheless, I would click sometimes out of curiosity on some of these related videos. And occasionally I would click on something that would present a piece of information that I thought was intriguing about reports, for example, reported in The Guardian and other mainstream establishment papers that Osama bin Laden had been met by intelligence agents in the uh, in the years prior to 9-11 and reports of him being in Rawalpindi on 9-10 and things like this. They just little pieces of information like that that were verifiable because yeah. we're on in the internet age. Uh, that sort of thing you might hear If you had heard 20 years ago, you might have heard it and, oh, is that true? I don't know. I have no way of really, am I going to go to the library and try to dig up some newspaper article from two years ago in from France or something? I mean, how am I going to do this? Mm. But in the internet age, it's actually remarkably easy. So I could go and independently verify little bits and pieces and tidbits of information and start to connect them into a bigger picture. And I guess that was the proverbial tumbling down the rabbit hole because like a snowball rolling downhill, just more and more of these little facts start to accumulate until you start to see a very, very different picture altogether. So that's generally where I would place my sort of story as to how I I began all this. But the question, have I ever been credulous to Mm -hmm. establishment media? And To some extent, I think you could definitely see the seeds of what I have become from my early uh, experiences uh, with media. For example, I can remember as a little grade school boy, fifth grade or sixth grade or something, I remember watching the evening news with my dad one night and 
I remember there was some sort of story that came on and I don't, I have no idea. I can't remember what it was about it any, uh, anymore, but I remember turning to my dad after the story aired on the news. And I said, was that a news story or an advertisement? Because it was basically just a little piece about how great some company was or, or something, you know, this product is so wonderful or something. <laughs> I, yeah. I said to my dad, was that news or was that an advertisement? And he said, I think it's an advertisement. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I've always had that sense, you know, the, the critical sense of looking at what I'm being, not, not just accepting what is uh, being presented to me, always trying to question it. I could even go back to a story that I remember from fourth grade. So I would have been about nine or 10 years old, something along those lines. In science class, our science teacher was asking the students one day, um, it was something to do with, will this object float or will it sink? And they decided, he decided to do like a, let's have a vote, a class vote. Who thinks it'll float? Who thinks it'll sink? And whatever it was, I put up my hand up for the right, what turned out to be the right answer. But when we were told, you know, actually it'll float and blah, blah, blah. And then we <laughs> moved on. Once I was told what the right answer was and that I had gotten the right answer, I wasn't content with that. I immediately started to think of the counter. Well, what if, why, why isn't it like this? And I, so I actually started to argue with the teacher. <laughs> well, actually, shouldn't it mm. sink because blah, blah, blah. And I think I have the sense from my experience with people over the years that generally once people have been told by an authority figure that yes that's the right answer and you have the right answer most people would probably be satisfied with that but i actually mm. found that that prompted me even more to think more critically and deeply about what it was i was being told and wh- why isn't it like this so i've had little bits like that along the way i don't think there was a single moment where i suddenly started questioning everything i think i've always had that sort of drive within me yeah i feel a bit the same yeah i mean i i do remember the 25th anniversary of jfk which would have been 88 I think it was ITV, which was at that time was apparently a bit more edgy than BBC, although probably not in reality. And I remember, it's funny actually thinking back, I remember they they presented a fairly even-handed case. Not to give myself credit, but I think as a child, I was always open-minded. I think that's one of the things. And you and I were chatting about John Lennon earlier, and (laughs) any of my listeners who've migrated from Glass Onion are going to hear me already going on about Coleman and fucking Goldman. <laughs> Apologies, everybody. Now, all I was going to say was that I read those two books, these two unbelievably polarized accounts of John Lennon, and I didn't really judge them. That was a thing. And I think that was a good sort of seed for the future of just not making judgments, because I think as we go through our childhood, you know, it, most of us grow up in, uh, I'm going to call it mainstream life, let's say, you know, if we didn't grow up on a hippie commune, for example, there are certain things through school that will quickly sort of crush the kind of dissension that you you were talking about, you know, oh, as a child, you shouldn't be that paranoid to think that people have ulterior motives, that kind of thing. So it's a good quality. And one of my nephews, in fact, has this quality of not reacting, because I, I think the problem we have in the world, and it's just been exacerbated, is the problem of just reacting without thinking. Anyway, let's continue with this uh, nostalgia tra- nostalgia trip. When did you actually start the Corbett Report, and what was the what was the first video or audio you made? If you can remember, it was two thousand seven, and okay. uh, June first, two thousand seven, was the release of the first podcast episode, which was Investigate Nine Eleven. So nine uh, eleven uh-huh. had been the thing that had, at least in that sequence that I talked about earlier in two thousand six, had been the first part of my going down that particular rabbit hole. So yeah. I started the podcast on that note specifically. I remember at the time, at that time especially, when people get into this type of information and start to realize, oh, we're, we're being lied to about a lot mm. of things, I think a lot of people immediately get 
quite paranoid, oh, it's all going to happen tomorrow. And I remember having that palpable sense back in 2007. Oh, you know, if something, whatever, a nuclear terrorist false flag or whatever happens, you know, who knows what will happen and they'll shut down the Internet. I was in that coming from that perspective at that time. So I remember making the first 10 podcast episodes specifically trying to hit all of the key major ideas and themes that I wanted to hit on the podcast. So those 10 specifically were kind of geared towards that until I started to realize, oh, maybe I have a little bit more space here and started to explore in more depth. So uh, 9-11 was the first topic. World War III starts in Iran was the second topic. So the getting into right. geopolitics and from there, more broadly speaking about false flag terror and environmentalism is corporate controlled and talking about how the greenwashing had largely steered the environmental movement in unproductive ways, talking about big pharma and its influence over the medical industrial complex, talking about the military industrial complex, obviously. So sort of hitting those kind of major themes that I think have become staples of my work. I mean, for me, the the big thing was um, banking. And um, Mm, yeah, one of the things that was a kind of a kinship I had with you is that I was a teacher in Thailand around 2008, 2009, and you were a teacher in Japan just down the road. So to speak. Well, no, no, not just down the road, but you know, you're in Asia as a teacher and I was as well. And you were, um, how can I put this? You were a calm antidote to uh, someone like Alex Jones. And I actually found in those days, I have to give the guy credit, some of his early stuff and some of the guests he had on, he did open my eyes to a lot of things. Um, if you remember, the, the fashionable term was awakening in those days. And I, and I still think that holds true because, uh, you know, I'm sure you'd agree there is a period where you do feel like you've been living in the dark and that, you know, our parents unwittingly, of course, had brought us up really in this, really just this very limited box. And you do find, you, you know, your eyes are opened. I mean, do you remember Zeitgeist? Do you remember that? I, I do, yeah. Yeah. Peter Joseph, who I've always kind of liked. I just, um, I like the way he presents. He's just started a new podcast and I find him very good on things like economics. I don't know what you think, but the Zeitgeist film, the original one, I think it was three parts, wasn't it? One was about religion. And I mean, that was absolutely leapt on. Peter Joseph said at one point he was getting an email a minute, but the part of that film that was never really debunked was about the Federal Reserve. And then he brought out the addendum, and I think the financial thing was a big thing because I, I had a friend who was also a teacher who used to send me stuff. And I don't know if you ever found this. Everybody has a very similar, I'm not going to say everybody, a lot of people have a very similar allergic reaction to this kind of thing, you know, because someone's telling you, oh, everything, not everything you've been told is a lie, but a great deal of the stuff you've been told is a lie or at very best you, you've been led down a certain path. Would you agree with that? That propaganda essentially starts almost from the day we're born. <laughs> is that too much? Or No, no, that isn't too much. I think propaganda is infused, even in the institutional structures of the way that we have grown up and lived our lives and the, mm. the, uh, the institutions that we've been raised in, like the public education system, for example. Mm. And I use the word education in quotation marks for yes. reasons that will be more familiar to more your more conspiratorial minded uh, uh, listeners. <laughs> but yes, even this idea that there should be public schooling from the ages of whatever to whatever is a relatively on the bigger scale of things, recent phenomenon, mm-hmm. one that is so infused our entire society that we now wouldn't even think to begin questioning that. Of course, it has to be. We have to do that. How else could we structure human society? So I think, yeah, propaganda is infused in everything. But this is, I think, where people 
can overstate the case or can turn people off with this type mm-hmm. of viewpoint is to it somehow imply that everyone in positions of authority is always self-consciously lying all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think it's subtler than that. As has been observed, I can't remember by whom and on what particular TV mindless uh, news chat show it was, but a newsreader was saying, well, do you think everyone in the news business is controlled and we're all told what to say? And Maybe it was Chomsky. Anyway, I think uh, it was retorted. Yeah. No, I, I think if you didn't believe what you believe, you wouldn't be sitting there. So they don't have to tell you everything to say. And I think that's the yeah. level at which this operates is that obviously it's largely unspoken and just understood. Yes, there are certain areas that you talk about and go into and certain areas you don't. That becomes a sort of self-reinforcing system without even someone necessarily directing what every single person is saying or doing or thinking. It's just part of this water that we're swimming in as the fish. Yeah, I actually know the clip you're talking about because weirdly enough, I was watching that a few weeks ago. It was Andrew Marr with Chomsky. Okay. Yeah, and Andrew Marr was saying, oh, you know, why are you talking about self-censorship? I don't self-censor, you know. And, um, yeah, and Chomsky, as you said, was was trying to explain to him. But I know you made a video about Chomsky a few years ago, and I, and I do understand your concerns because he's, he's somewhere in the middle, isn't he? Because the, the mainstream aren't really interested in him because he's too alternative. And a lot of the alternative media don't like him because, as, as you said in your video you made a few years ago, he, he tends to ignore certain things like the Federal Reserve, you know, and, so, uh, and JFK. And JFK. And 9-11. And, 9/11. and anything <laughs> right. else that's actually uh, controversial. Yeah, yeah, but let's, again, we have to use critical faculties here just because I strongly disagree with Chomsky on certain issues mm. to the point where I don't think he's being honest in his argumentation against them. That doesn't mm. mean that everything he says should then, therefore be thrown out. Obviously, oh, no. he has valid critiques of various things, and I'm I'm not afraid to quote someone that I disagree with on certain areas when they're yes. right on other areas. Yeah, and I th- and the thing is that he does get some mainstream coverage as well, and I think we should be happy that someone who is as alternative as him, you know, relatively speaking, at least can go on the BBC uh, hard talk and talk to uh, I don't know Jeremy Paxman. Who's... Actually, that's that's kind of <laughs> ironic because that is the propaganda model from manufacturing consent in a nutshell is that, well, at least they'll right. allow him on mainstream television. So at least, you know, the, there's the acceptable yeah. realm of debate at least extends that far, but certainly doesn't extend to someone <laughs> who would question 9-11 or JFK or those types of things. I know what you mean. Yeah, that is quite ironic. Yeah, but uh one thing I was going to get to a bit later was what would be a first step, you know, if someone who's maybe listening to my podcast has heard about uh, conspiracy theories and has never been told that any of them could be valid, but is thinking, well, hmm, something doesn't seem right. You know, I think manufacturing consent is a pretty good first step. Would you agree, you know, in terms of media? I couldn't disagree. I certainly mm. remember reading it before I got into the quote unquote conspiracy world and, mm. and understanding it on a, a deep level that clearly it was true and it resonated. And actually it may be different in today's environment because they were writing about the, uh, the mass media market of the 1980s specifically, but that era more broadly, I think it's very different in the internet age, but if you're say of our age or older and you don't understand the premise that's being forwarded there, then I think you probably won't understand very much further. (laughs) I think that might be a basic level of of understanding to at least start to realize how controlled media perspective can be. Well, I think even even an easier step is a, I think it's a five minute video of his on, it's not him, but it's someone quoting him, the five filters of the media machine. I mean, that's very easy to watch because I understand one of the things um, 
a very good book I read years ago was called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I don't know if you've ever come across that. I have, yeah, of yeah, course, by Neil yeah. Postman. Neil Postman, yeah. And that was written in the 80s, and that was talking about this um, dumbing down. And if you remember, he was talking about when uh, Lincoln was running for president, I don't remember who he was running against. They actually made two-hour speeches, and people sat and listened for two hours. And nowadays you think, oh, my God, that sounds like hell on earth, you know. But apparently, you know, I wasn't there, obviously, but apparently it was two hours of fairly nuanced debate, you know, and and they were both allowed to talk. And to get from there to, I think the Trump and Hillary debates were the worst. I don't think Trump and Biden was quite as bad, but it was fairly dreadful. So I think uh, nowadays, all I was going to say was that that five filters video, it's a five minute video. So people are probably more likely, don't want to sound too patronizing, sorry about that, but people are more likely to watch that than to maybe read one of Chomsky's books. Because if I have another criticism about him as a writer, he is a little bit dry and a bit stodgy, you know, as dry as he is as a writer, cannot listen to him speak. I don't know why Uh, I like him. Yeah. I think it's because I listen to podcasts at one and a half speed. I think that's the secret. (laughs) I listen to double speed actually. Oh, do you? Then at double speed, he's almost tolerable, but still, uh, (laughs) yeah. Right. Going back to this conspiracy thing, um, I'm going to guess you're uh, something of an admirer of George Carlin, or at least some of his content. I certainly resonate with his ideas. Uh, Something that was pointed out to me a while ago and that I can't get out of my head now is that by the end, Carlin wasn't doing comedy. He was just reciting long lists of things in a way that was fast enough to incite applause from the audience, but that weren't funny in the least and didn't involve punchlines. So as a comedian, I have come around to the fact that he actually was not all that funny, but he certainly said profoundly important things. Yes. Well, I think he was a good comedian up up to a point. I mean, he, he was yeah. schooled. I mean, he, he was actually quite um, friendly with Lenny Bruce. So I think back in those days, George Collin. Have you ever listened to Lenny Bruce? It's very hard to listen to. It's hard because it's not yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can kind of, it's one of those things where I can see why people like it. But I find, you know, Hicks and Carlin so much easier to listen to. But You're not going to like my take on Hicks either. <laughs> Oh, really? Right. I think even more strongly than Carlin, I think Hicks was not very funny. Don't think funny <laughs> I, I really. agree with a lot of what he said, but he was just ranting and it wasn't that humorous. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I would disagree because I think they, at their best, they straddle this line of um, comedy and truth. And with George Carlin, towards the end of his life, I think he was so fed up. He was so jaded and he was so cynical that I think, as you said, because he had an audience and he knew he was going to get an audience when he did an HBO special, he just said, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to tell you how the world works, you know, and I'll put a few jokes in there. I mean, the famous speech, I'm sure you heard this, called The Owners of the Country. And again, it's a mm, great, of course, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's, it's brilliant. You know, I, I used to get yeah. chills when I listened to that, to be honest. And he did manage to get some comedy. You know, he says at the end, it's a big club and you ain't in it. You know, yeah, he managed yeah, to... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Classic, timeless lines in there and absolutely apt observations. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But the thing that uh, Hicks was right about what he spoke about. If you're a marketing executive, kill yourself. I don't know. I I get it. And it'll evoke laughs, but it's not really funny. Right, right. I see. I see. But um, what I was going to say about Carlin is that his kind of line uh, towards the end of his life was that you don't need a formal conspiracy and it's the owners who have similar interests. Now, I'm a bit more... Not that there's smoky brooms, but I think the Council on Foreign Relations, for example, you know, they do meet and they do have an agenda. So where do you stand in that 
yeah, I'm not going to say smoky rooms, but where do you, where do you stand on Carlin's take that you don't need a conspiracy? But how much of it is people meeting with agendas for the world? Where would you stand? It's funny that? that you mentioned this actually, because I recently, mm. I, in fact, as we record this, uh, currently up on my front page is a video essentially answering this question. A right. edition of my questions for Corbett series asking. I can't remember the specific title I gave it, something like, uh, how can a global conspiracy work? Mm. And this is, of course, is one of the fundamental questions that will prevent people from even starting to look at this information. Mm. Essentially, the argument from incredulity, I can't believe that this happens, therefore, I'm not going to look at it. I think there are a number of ways to answer this. One is that certainly I am not an adherent to or a proponent of the single monolithic conspiracy theory that there's Mm. Everything in the world is controlled by one or, or a small group of, uh, of men sitting around in the smoky room, mm. literally controlling every single thing that happens on the planet. That, I think, is ludicrous. Having said that, the uh, it's all just a coincidence and everything just kind of happens and there's no coordination of any sort is equally ludicrous and easily demonstrably false. I think the truth is somewhere in between. And the best articulation of this concept, the way to get your head around it was... Articulated by G. Edward Griffin in a lecture that he gave, I believe, a few decades ago or a couple decades ago at this point. Um, But it's called the Quigley Formula. And essentially in that, he's talking about Carol Quigley, who was a Georgetown professor, name-checked by Bill Clinton during the 1992 uh, Democratic National Convention, etc. And he was quite an establishment mainstream professor who wrote some interesting books, including The Anglo-American Establishment and Tragedy and Hope, that would have, or yeah, I suppose, would have been denounced as just zany conspiracy th- theorist fear-mongering from any other source. But since it was from this respected professor, it was essentially just never talked about, perhaps following that uh, propaganda model from manufacturing consent. It's just not allowed in the debate at all. But essentially what Carol Quigley was saying is, yes, there's this group that uh, doesn't have a particular form or a particular name. You could call it the Rhodes Roundtable or et cetera, et cetera. But they specifically went out to create a sort of secret society that has or had a, a direct role in every major event of the 20th century. Carol Quigley writing in the mid 20th century by that point. And he laid out, you know, the the foundations of this, where it started, who was involved in this, how they operated, the different institutions they formed. And J. Edward Griffin's take on this, the Quigley formula, was to point out that as Quigley noted, with the founding of this group, that again, this amorphous group that doesn't exactly have a name, I suppose if we could say it was founded by Cecil Rhodes and a couple of people that he was uh, very close collaborators with in the late 19th century. At that time, specifically focusing on the forwarding and and the the universalization of the British Empire, that it was all for the glory of the British Empire, essentially, uh, British civilization, that obviously morphed uh, over time and became more censored in America and has changed since that point. But that was Mm -hmm. its original ostensible aims anyway. Again, completely documented from mainstream sources, as I pointed out in my World War I conspiracy at corporatereport.com slash WWI. The way that that conspiracy functioned was to have those few core people at the very center of this who then brought around them a slightly larger group of people who were going to be largely on board and understood their aims and were on board with their purpose. And those people would then found organizations that would be broader and have more people come on who would have sort of general accord with one or another part of this idea or this agenda. And through that, you develop the system of rings within rings within rings, where eventually you get these organizations like, for example, the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States or the Royal Institute for International Affairs in the UK 
and many other such organizations in other countries that may have thousands of members. And certainly not every member is a knowing, witting conspirator, all part of the plan, all 100% on board with the agenda. No, they are working towards what they see as good and noble aims. They just don't know that there is a, a smaller clique that's in the middle that is starting to set the agenda for this wider institution. Mm -hmm. And through that system, you can wield enormous amounts of power just by bringing people on out of their own self-interest or motivating them by telling them parts of your agenda but withholding others. And in this fashion, you can create much, much larger institutions that do involve thousands, tens of thousands, ultimately hundreds of thousands or millions of people when you start to look at the institutional nature of this that don't necessarily recognize that their agenda is being set or they are being pushed in one direction or another by a mm. smaller, powerful clique in the middle that they don't even know exists. And that's one way to start to wrap your head around this. You don't even have to go conspiratorial for this. This is just the way it works, for example, in intelligence agencies agencies with compartmentalization of information, need to know yep. basis, you get to know what your part of the puzzle that you're working on, you can know about this operation, but the guy sitting next to you at uh, in the headquarters may be working on a project you have no idea about because you're not authorized for access. And by that method, you can keep people compartmentalized. Only the people at the top of that structure know what everyone is working on and thus can be directing the entire organization towards ends that no one of those individuals acting would even suspect exists, let alone be on board with. Yeah, I mean, a, a fairly simple analogy. I mean, once upon a time before I became a teacher, I, I used to work in finance and I worked for a couple of big companies. And if you think about a corporation, just the fact that, you know, however many levels of uh, hierarchy between me as a junior and the guy at the top, not that when I worked for those, I ever really wanted to know what was happening in the middle of the company. I wasn't really that interested, but, you know, you'd have X amount of middle managers and the whole thing was controlled by a hierarchy. And I actually used to work in a fairly large finance department. And within the finance department of 45, 50 people or so, there were four or five hierarchies within them. You know, I, I understand what you mean. It's uh, you only get to know a little bit and the guy above you will know a little bit more. It's a way of controlling where you don't really need to even come down hard on people. Would you agree? If with I that? may suggest a piece of literature for people who are so inclined, American Tabloid by James Elroy yeah. is a book about the JFK assassination, I suppose. Yeah. And I say I suppose because in a sense, it shows you the inside of one part of, obviously in a fictional scenario, but inside of one part of what James Elroy is imagining could be the, the broader plot to assassinate JFK. But just reading that book gives you a sense of what an operation like that could be. I mean, again, obviously this is fictional, but it shows you that from the perspective of one of the boots on the ground, lower level thugs involved in a much, much, much broader operation, mm. everyone has a tiny little piece of this puzzle and can see this piece that connects this to this, mm. but has no idea about this other piece that's connecting that to that. Until by the end of the book, as the JFK assassination is actually happening, you have the, the real profound realization that even if you were told the name of the person who is pulling the trigger, and it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald, it wouldn't tell you about that plot. I mean, there's so many different pieces and so many people involved from different angles that have little bits of information that just the name of the person pulling the trigger 
I won't say is secondary, but isn't actually the plot itself. I mean, it's a great book for kind of getting you to that place of having that realization if you're interested in books. If you're more interested in listening to podcasts, let me plug an edition of The Mind Renewed, which I know you've been a guest on in the past. I remember listening to you on that. And I did an interview on that podcast years ago, and I believe it's posted on my site under interview 600. Um, But essentially, that's my articulation of sort of the broader idea of a new world order conspiracy or whatever term people want to give it that might sound ridiculous to people who've never thought about it before. But my my articulation of how to understand what that is and how it functions, not just out of curiosity, but also because if we do not formulate our conception of what this conspiracy is and how it functions properly, then we will never actually be able to fruitfully confront it. Because if we're given For example, it's the one monolithic conspiracy, it's run by one person or one little group of people in a room, then I guess the answer to that conspiracy is, well, then I guess we just need, uh, you know, someone to go into that room and bomb the room and kill all those people and then everyone will be happy forever after. But if we have a different perception of it, like, for example, through this compartmentalization understanding that thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, perhaps millions of people in the broader scheme of things are working towards the creation of this agenda that they don't necessarily know about or even Mm -hmm. support, then the implication is if we can convince people to start working towards other ends or working towards ends that they actually agree with to withdraw their consent and support for a system that ultimately they're not in accord with, then we can have a much broader of impact in actually changing the way that the world functions. Because the real one of the, the key insights into that understanding that through compartmentalization, a lot of people are working towards ends that they're not in accord with, mm. is that the power actually comes from us. We provide the power to the system by giving it our time, our attention, our energy, our lifeblood. We work for these corporations or systems that, again, may be working against our interests in the long run, but we're just trying to put food on our table. Mm. Well, the power from the system is coming from us. And if we can direct that power towards ends that we actually productively want to bring into existence, rather than simply going along to get along, we can really change the world. And I think that's that's an empowering message. And that's part of the reason that Hollywood, for example, will give you no end of false templates about how to defeat the enemy. It's Rambo going in, guns blazing, kills the bad guy, and everything is better. I don't think that's how any successful revolution will ever play out. Let's put it that way. Oh, I mean, that's been my mantra, let's say. for (laughs) I'm sure it's been yours as well for the last 10 years, this this idea of us um, contributing. And yeah, I mean, I understand, of course, you know, the argument will always be, well, I've got family, I've got mortgage and everything. But uh, let me ask you a question. When you were a teacher in Japan, were you teaching kids or adults or, or both? So I came out to teach in the private schools here. So that was oh, okay. a mixture of adults, children, students, everything. I ended up teaching in the public school system. So I was teaching elementary uh, school by the time I finished. Oh, okay. So the, so there was never a time after you'd become, I don't know, let's say acquainted with this alternative information that you were teaching adults? Were you teaching kids after that? Yeah, I was just teaching. Uh, okay. I, I, I think there was some, yeah, there was a few months of overlap. And mm. uh, actually that was interesting because I remember I was reading Jim Mars Crossfire at the time. So getting oh, deep yeah. into the JFK assassination. And yeah. I did try to raise the subject with some of my students here, but uh, cultural and linguistic barriers made it so that it was not a fruitful discussion. Sure. I mean, I've been so lucky. In a way, it's almost preserved my sanity in one sense, because for the last 10 years, I've been teaching uh, adults. 
and mostly fairly high level. I got myself established as a kind of advanced teacher, mostly preparing them for Cambridge advanced exams. So I've been blessed in that I've been able to bring all this stuff up and I've kind of honed my technique because if you're going to try and enlighten isn't the word, but if you're going to try and expose somebody to this, you've got to do it in a certain way. You know, you've got to say, oh, did you hear about this? You know, oh, I heard about this. You know, isn't this strange? You know, rather than saying, oh, oh, I know the truth. I'm a truther, you know. And I've seen my students over the last few years just gradually switch their, uh, shift their perspectives. And um, I have a student now who uh, (laughs) over the last three months, uh, almost every class he comes to me with something uh, about this. He came to me with a, he lives in Switzerland and the Swiss Economic Forum, it's an organization and they published a report. It was all about how the Council on Foreign Relations infiltrated the media. Mm. And I'm like, wow, you know, and I, I've seen a, a great shift. And, and I feel like that's almost all we can do. I mean, you've been doing this work for over 10 years. I've appeared on Julian's show a few times. I've obviously got a John Lennon podcast, but as you've heard, if you listen to that, you know, I do try and cross over into alternative information because you can't just hammer John Lennon only for two years. You know, it's difficult. <laughs> so I've been lucky with that. But um, if you don't mind, I, I want to ask you some stuff about Japan, because as you said, you've lived there since 2004. Have you had any engagement with Japanese politics or is, is that too much of a minefield? I wouldn't say minefield. It's just not mm. particularly where my energy or time is invested. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, the closest brush that I've had was that there was a politician, I believe it was an opposition member at the time, mm. who went on to be in the ruling party, but not a high-ranking member of that party, who had brought 9-11 truth to the floor of the Japanese diet and had given a presentation that uh, mentioned things about explosions in the buildings and things like that. Mm. And uh, he was a guest on the Alex Jones show at that time. Uh, and so I had reached out via a contact that I had made through Osaka 9-11 Truth Conference that I went to, the person who was organizing that, I knew uh, was in touch with this politician. So I had reached out to see if it would be possible to interview this politician. I never heard back. So that was about as close as I ever got to actually. I gave it a try, though. <laughs> I gave it a try. I gave it a try. But of course, that was on the 9-11 issue, which is more American or international than Japanese mm. in particular. I mean, all politics is interesting from the soap opera perspective of dramas and things like this, but uh, it's going to be extremely unrelatable to the vast majority of my audience, 99.999% of which is not in Japan. It would be extremely interesting to know the extent of the dynamics of how the Japanese ties into the grander scale of the conspiracy that I I talk about. And Mm. clearly one inroad into that story would be the Trilateral Commission, which was set up in the 1970s by David Rockefeller and Spignu Brzezinski, specifically to bring Japan and North America and Europe together, the, the leaders, misleaders, the business uh, community and, uh, and political leaders of those nations together to coordinate essentially on the RIIA or the CFR agenda, sort of on an international scale. So clearly there's some interesting overlap there. But actually, I mean, I think... Japan's role, the seat at that table, has been eclipsed in recent years, obviously, by China. And so Mm. I think even its relative influence in that regard is waning more than waxing. Right. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really expecting that you'd be doing shows about it, because as you said, you know, it wouldn't be relevant to your audience. But I was, I imagine that you'd have some curiosity at least about it. So um, again, uh, forgive the general question, but is there any, (laughs) how do I say this? 
Is there anything you could tell us about, I don't know, the Japanese people as a whole? I mean, are they, do you feel like they're more propagandized than, let's say, in Canada or in, in Britain? I know this is very general, but I'm only saying that because when, when I was in Thailand, I did make an attempt to try and understand Thai culture and to try and understand their propaganda. And for example, they had a social media platform. I think it was pre-Facebook around the same time called I Love Thailand. And uh, some of the grizzled Westerners who'd been there longer than I had said that, you know, Thai people are, are probably a subject to fairly hard propaganda. So is there anything you could tell us about Japanese society and, I don't know, the malleability of Japanese people. You know, it is interesting because in one sense, I have done a bit of traveling in my time and mm-hmm. I definitely think that people are people everywhere in the world. Sure. Um, so I would, I don't know if I'd say the Japanese are more or less propagandized than the Canadians, for example, but just in different ways and to different aims and different extents. So the uh, person who was in charge of the American administration of Japan in the post-war era had remarked that Japan is is a nation of children or something along those lines. Mm. And I certainly understand the sentiment of that because in Japan, it seems to me from my observation, having lived here for almost two decades now, if you want to steer Japanese society in one direction or another, you create a cartoon character and have a big you know, PR campaign of, and now yeah. we're all going to do this. And yeah. most people will go along with it. And I still don't know to the the extent to which people actually believe and internalize all these things and do it because they want to do it or they think it is a good thing or they just go along to get along. I'm sure there's a mixture of both. And obviously, yeah. like anywhere else, there are individuals with their own perspectives and their own ways of doing things. But there is definitely a culture of conformity in Japan that I think is well-known and well-renowned. The hammer, the nail that sticks up will be hammered down and whatever other cliches you've heard. Um, <laughs> there, There is some truth to that. And it starts yeah. early with the way that children are handled in schools here. Not to say that children are not unruly here, that they're somehow different or anything like that, but no, just the types of expectation of conformity and actually some of the things that they employ in Japanese classrooms that I found were as interesting and might give insights into the Japanese psychology, like how most disciplinary action that I saw was not necessarily, wasn't top down from the teacher. One way of handling classrooms here would be to break the class into groups and the groups are essentially rewarded or chastised for their conformity or lack thereof so that any individual member of one of those groups is going to be essentially policed by the other members of that group. And there are some very interesting lessons, I think, for how to essentially create conformist societies uh, from things like that. But yeah, I I think there is a malleability of the Japanese people that is quite surprising. Public perceptions and behaviors can seemingly turn on a dime, Mm -hmm. which is remarkable in a lot of ways. I mean, even something fundamental, like I remember at one point looking at a poster here from, it was clearly like a a pre-war kind of, you know, an old school poster, obviously a reprint or something like that of an old, whatever it was, beer ad or something. And I remember reading it and going, well, that makes no sense. And someone said, oh, you have to read it the other way around because of course they used to write right to left. 
But after the war, the Americans came in and now they read left to right. <laughs> it's like, what? You just completely change your entire way of writing because of, oh, okay, all right. Yeah. Things like that, that I think are pretty unimaginable from our perspective in England or in Canada or in America or places like that. To have that kind of malleability of the population is remarkable in some ways. And I suppose in a way is kind of beneficial to some extent that the Japanese can turn on a dime and they can change around, but also is quite horrific seen from the, the question of, well, is there anything core to your nature that you will actually fight to preserve? Or can you just be told by an authority figure to change and you will do so? It leads to some interesting things. Like, for example, as I've noted here, Japan is still very, very much a cash-centered economy. You can go and buy a car with cash. In fact, that would almost be expected. Uh, you would just walk in with a big envelope of cash and pay for the car, and no one would bat an eyelid at that. Or you go to the convenience store to buy a stick of gum and you pay with a, what's the equivalent of a $100 bill. And again, there's no big deal. They just give you the change, whatever. It's still very, very cash-centered. And there is obviously electronic payment and increasingly so, but still nothing like it is, as I've had cause to observe back in Canada by this point. But I do maintain that probably when there is a concerted effort to, okay, now we're going to be a cashless society and everyone's going to use electronic payment, I could imagine very easily that the Japanese public could be turned on a dime and suddenly cash would disappear. I could imagine that happening without too much of a tumult here. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, when I was in Thailand, like I said, I mean, I, I'm the kind of person like you, I'm very, just very curious. And I, I, you know, I love watching everyday life. When I go to a new city, I don't go to museums and cathedrals. <laughs> I just walk around observing daily life because it's so much more interesting. But the thing you said about the the kind of childish cartoon thing, I mean, there was so much of that in Thailand. I mean, I used to teach like one-to-one -one classes and I'd have students who were in their thirties or forties. And at Christmas, they'd buy me like a cuddly toy or something and uh, little things like that. And when I watched a little bit of TV, although I had sort of rudimentary Thai, I did take Thai lessons, but when I'd watch TV, I just was blown away by it, by just the sort of infantilization of everything. And that, like I said, everything was a cartoon and everything. And the other thing was that what I found in Thailand, it was basically collectivist in the, they had very, very big, I didn't really teach in public schools, just very briefly at the beginning, but I was mostly in um, what they call academies or language schools. And they always had large classrooms. And I noticed that people were basically always being herded in groups. And I actually had a student, every now and again, I'd have a student who was quote unquote westernized. And the advantage of that is that they go to America or Britain, let's say, or even Australia, because it's a bit closer. And they'd come back and they'd want to discuss Thai culture because they'd seen it from the outside. Finally, you know, it's like anything. Mm -hmm. If you're stuck in the bubble, you yeah. can't see. And it was so interesting. And I had this guy who had a really good level of English and we would have fantastic chats and he wanted to know about English culture. And he was into the alternative information as well. He wanted, he knew about the banking system. And um, he said, yeah, we're basically collectivists. And one of the things that happens in Thai schools that he told me was we're in big classes and Thai kids, for whatever reason, I don't know if this is a natural thing. They have a quite a brutal sense of humor. So basically if you're in a class of 50 and you get a question wrong, the whole class just starts laughing at you and like mm. pointing at you. And again, in a very, he told me in a very childish way. So 17, 18 year olds began like, ah. and I mean, these are just observations. I found loads of stuff about Thai culture. I was very impressed by, you know, for a start, they have this philosophy, Sanuk, which means fun, which means they try and make everything fun. 
you know, even backbreaking labor in the fields mm. and things. So, you know, I don't know if you found this in Japan, but there were so many jaded Westerners in Thailand who were just so cynical and just thought everything in Thailand was shit. And they were basically mm. primitive sort of animals. And in a funny way, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I never had the balls to say this, but I essentially they're making the same argument that the colonizers make. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, yeah. 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 You know, that these people yeah. are stupid and we need to, you know, if they were just a bit more like us, everything would be all right. You know, Did right. you yeah. any of that in Japan. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I think very similar. I'm sure it's it's similar in expat communities all around the world. But yeah, sure, there's definitely yeah. the jaded old hands who have lived here for decades and presumably will continue to live for the rest of their life, but criticize absolutely everything about the, <laughs> yeah, the country and culture they're living in. I try not to be that. Uh, obviously, this is where I've made my home and my family, and I feel more comfortable here than I have felt in any place, including Canada. And what you say about being outside of the culture and being able to see it more clearly is absolutely true for me with Canada. And seeing Canada from the outside perspective to me is depressing, unfortunately, because I could see how Canadians could look over at Japan and say, well, look, they're all conditioned and propagandized there. They are a nation of children. But I look backwards at what's happening in Canada these days, and I, I see very much the conditioning and propaganda that goes on. It's just a different form. It plays out differently, but I, I see it functioning in, in broadly similar ways. And when we look at the incredible things that have happened over the past year to completely upend things that we would have taken for granted mm -hmm. at any other point in our lifetimes about freedom of movement and freedom to associate and group with other people and etc. Canada has been one of the worst aggressors in all of this with uh, now talking about mandatory quarantines and things like this for returning even returning Canadian citizens with negative tests. Yeah. Pay $2,000 to be quarantined at some uh, secret government sponsored hotel facility for three days. Things like this um, that are largely supported by the public because they are in mortal fear of what they have been told to be in mortal fear about. And I see that in a very similar way to um, the ways that the Japanese people or presumably maybe the Thai people or others can be conditioned. It's just it wouldn't take the form of cartoon characters necessarily in Canada, but the similar things can be accomplished. Yeah, sure. Just a final thing on, on this kind of propaganda. Another very interesting experience I had when I was in Italy, I was a teacher there as well. I met an American who was a Southerner, and he grew up in, uh, let's say, Georgia. It was one of the fairly deep South states. But then his family had moved to Los Angeles when he was, I think he was 12 or 13. So he was in a very unique position because he'd been through school in the Southern states and on the West Coast. And he said the difference was unbelievable. He said in his school in Georgia – you know, you want to talk about propaganda and that, oh, you know, in the West, we're not propagandized. He said, you know, there were American flags just everywhere. And every morning, first thing at school, they would sing God Bless America. And um, I can't remember if it was Carlin or Hicks. And they said, how arrogant is that? Why should God only bless your country? <laughs> <laughs> but um, and then when he went to LA, he said to, you know, LA is not a perfect place, but um, he said that the, the freedom he had was quite amazing. But he said, you know, like I said, the propaganda in his school was just incredible. And, yeah, you have to remember when, I don't know at what age you kind of came to consciousness and started to actually start looking around the world. But, I, you know, whatever age it is, however precocious you are, there's going to be a, a good few years that we've all basically been told stuff. And like I said, our parents tell us stuff with good intentions. Our teachers tell us stuff. And by the time we actually get to a point where we can start thinking about things, you know, that propaganda is so deep set, you know, 
Yes, I think we're actually honing in on an important point, which is Mm. that to some extent, whether literally, physically or otherwise, you need to somehow get outside of the culture or the propaganda that you're steeped in in order to see it for what it is. And I think there are moments of dislocation like that that are possible even from within the system. And one that actually occurs to me just listening to that story was in between. I I went to study at Trinity College in Dublin for a year to do a master's degree in Anglo-Irish literature. What does that get you? It gets you a degree in Anglo-Irish literature (laughs) and not much else. Um, And then I went back to Canada for several months, essentially to prepare to move to Japan. And in that time, I was just taking temp work. So one of my temp positions happened to be in a high school just doing data entry. And I remember the first morning I was working there, I'm sitting there at my computer typing away and then the morning announcements start. And then I didn't even notice it. I didn't even register it at the time. But of course, they play the Canadian national anthem, during which, of course, everyone is supposed to stand up and you know face the flag, including all the people working in the office, which I, I didn't even occur to me until suddenly someone's like, stand up, stand up. <laughs> like, oh, oh, right. Oh, yeah. And at that moment, I was, what, 20? two, maybe 23, not too far removed from my high school days. I'm like, did we used to do this? I don't even remember doing this every morning, but I guess, yeah, yeah, maybe we did used to do this. It's the kind of thing until you're dislocated from it or have a little bit of remove, you don't even realize how really weird and creepy that was. It was like, why are Mm. we doing this? What is the point of this? Mm. But hey, okay, I guess this is what I have to do now. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I th- I would say the biggest step for me about 10 years ago was not literally, but metaphorically throwing away my television. And when I stopped watching TV, I mean, I moved to Thailand, which helped. <laughs> and I, I would watch Thai TV just to try and pick up a bit of the language. That was the only reason. But I think actually I'd stopped watching TV before I moved abroad. So it's probably 2006, seven. And the difference in my life was just mm. incredible. And the first thing was that, when I was, you know, 21, 22, I had so many clothes and mm. products and CDs and everything. But clothes, I mean, I was just terrible for buying clothes. I couldn't even afford them half the time. And I noticed when you don't watch TV, you know, and I'm not saying don't watch things on a TV, but when you don't get your view of the world from the TV, amazing changes happen. And one of them I realized after a year, I've stopped buying clothes mm. because I don't need to buy clothes. And the only reason I was buying clothes is because I didn't realize that. I was just getting messages, you know, I mean, even just walking around a city for a day, they, they reckon, you know, you get exposed to, I don't know, 500 ads. Some people even said in the thousands, I don't know. I don't know how you'd possibly count that. But I think what I'd like people to realize, you know, if they've come new to this podcast is that so much of this stuff, you, like I say, you don't realize it. It doesn't have to be blatant. It's yeah. very, very subtle. You know, that's one of those things I'm sure has been influential in my life, but I can't say because I don't know what I don't know. And I haven't had a television. I have a physical television in Mm. the home right now, but it's not connected to TV. Uh, We use it to watch videos and that sort of thing. I haven't had a television essentially since I moved out of my home in Canada. So not since 2004, if I regularly watched television Mm. and I'm sure that has made a, a remarkable difference in my life, but I can't say because, again, I don't know what it would have been like. But I, I do get glimpses of that. For example, recently I was watching on YouTube. Yes, I must once again put in the caveat, please, people listening to this don't watch YouTube except for mindless entertainment here and there, but do not get your news and information from YouTube. That right. caveat aside, right. I was watching an old edition of Siskel and Ebert. I can't remember whatever movie they were reviewing, but this post of this uh, video had the original advertisements on it. 
So you could watch the commercials that were airing on this, you know, Chicago station in 1987 or whatever. And it was absolutely like I literally I couldn't believe how much the signal, the message, the programming of those commercials was eat, eat, eat (laughs) every single. I mean, just ad after ad after ad after ad for mindless snack or fast food or whatever. And it was just it was so relentless that I, I had to stop and think. Is this what commercials mm. are? Is this how this works? It just, it really seemed so bizarre to me to see it in that context. And I just thought, well, no wonder that we have an obesity epidemic. I mean, the constant yeah. theme of those advertisements was eat. Do you have not eaten enough? Here's more pictures mm. of food. It was really yeah. shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, let me just give you another. Uh, I've been into meditation for a long time. When I was in Thailand, I went on a 10-day meditation retreat. And um, it was fabulously well organized. Unfortunately, in I'm going to say the West again, but let's say in England, spiritual retreats have been morphed with spa retreats. So they, it's an excuse for them to charge lots of money. But the one I went in Thailand was brilliantly organized. It was a 10-day silent retreat. It was just a fantastic experience. Didn't cost a lot of money. And what was interesting was on the 11th day, so we hadn't, sorry to backtrack, we hadn't had any caffeine. The only sugar we'd had was fruit. We'd had these lovely veggie curries. We'd only eaten twice a day. And, you know, it was, it was tough for the first few days, but everybody came out of that 10-day retreat just feeling like wonderfully cleansed. But we decided, we went back into the, the town and we decided, oh, let's have a cup of coffee and a cake. You know, let's treat ourselves. It's been 10 days. <laughs> and I suddenly experienced the awesome power of caffeine and sugar. Because I tell you, as soon as I had this coffee and this cake, I just went bug-eyed. And I rang up my girlfriend at the time and she said, you were just babbling down the phone. You were just talking rubbish down the phone. <laughs> and you talk about drugs and John Lennon, to his credit, there's a, there's a fantastic clip because um, have you ever heard of the Gary Knoll show? Have you ever heard of that? Yes, guy? I've been a guest on it. Oh, have you been? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I found out, I've discovered some things about John Lennon doing this podcast. Well, number one, he read Brave New World and 1984 while at school, which I was very impressed by. And he used to listen to the Gary Knoll show in the 70s. <laughs> That's how long Gary Knoll's been going. And yeah. uh, there's a fantastic clip of John Lennon, which I've included on um, the drugs episode. I don't know if you heard that, but they, we reviewed a book yes, called Riding So High. Yeah. And John Lennon was talking about, um, you know, you talk about a drug problem. You should look about look at what the government's putting in your food. And I thought, oh wow, I bet there weren't many people saying that in the seventies. Was that the reason he was killed? No, sorry. <laughs> so this thing with sugar and caffeine, nobody realizes the power of sugar because we all have sugar every day. And nowadays, you know, you go to the supermarket, everything's got sugar in it. Bread has got sugar in it, and if it hasn't got sugar in it, it's got salt. And it's just, you know, you know what I mean? It's one of those examples where you have to step away from sugar for 10 days to realize how powerful it is and how much, how much it's probably frying our brains as well, you know, refined sugar. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, there's, there's no doubt. And I suppose uh, people who are interested in that side of, see earlier, you raised the specter of what's the best way to, or or the the best way for people to be introduced to this type of information. And Mm. I'm I'm a big proponent of the idea that everybody has their own particular field or subjects that they are interested in, that they will respond to more so than others. If you go to someone who's interested in natural health and how the body works and things like that, and you're ranting about banking and politics or something, you're probably not going to have much of an effect. But for people who are interested in 
this aspect of it, I think there are some extremely interesting uh, things to consider about the way that our food industry has been structured to create these processed foods, obviously for the financial benefit of the companies that are involved in this. That's obvious enough. But once you start to go beyond simply the financial incentive towards questioning why and how have we arrived at this spot where we are so saturated with these types of chemicals all the time so that we are essentially on this constant high. Again, it's one of those things that you don't recognize when you are in it. But if you step outside it for a second and read, for example, a couple of centuries ago, people talking about sugary treats being an incredibly you know, luxurious thing that you would yeah. get maybe a couple times a year if you were lucky. But we're at the point where you literally go to the corner store and buy a sugary treat every day without ever thinking about it. That's a profound shift. That's a profound shift in in the way we live our lives and the way we treat our bodies. And obviously that's going to have all sorts of knock-on effects. And what if there were people who recognized what those types of changes could do to the human body and to the, the human condition, human behavior? And what if there were people writing for the last century, for example, about pharmacological methods of changing the the population or about ways of chemically altering the population so that they were more docile or something like that? Well, I'm here to tell you there are on the record statements about exactly that type of thing that have been made for at least a century now that you could put your finger on and document from all sorts of people, Charles Galton Darwin and Bertrand Russell and Aldous Huxley and others writing and talking about this for a very long time. Which, in fact, I to once again plug that questions for Corbett that I recently did about uh, how can a global conspiracy function. I was talking about those those very examples and providing some of them. So I think that's one way for people who are interested in our bodies and how they function to at least start to wrap their heads around the idea of a global conspiracy. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, food is one of those things. It's like money. You know, it's part of everyone's life. You know, every day. You know, you've got to deal with it <laughs> one way or another. So. In this journey towards alternative information, I think there are certain things, as you said, you know, people have their own specializations, but I think things like food and money, I mean, you, you just simply can't ignore them. Just a word on, uh, on food. When we talk about, you know, small actions we can make, and a friend of mine made a, made a video, it was something like um, 100 ways to vote. And it was talking about not voting in elections, but like all of your actions are votes. You know, we know the thing about vote with your dollar, but he was talking about every action. I mean, I think talking to my students about this kind of thing, you know, just introducing it gently, that's my way of changing the world. You know, I mean, I don't have power in other ways, but I've got that power. And little things like um, with fruit and another thing that's that's just happened that nobody's probably even realized or they've never thought about is that now you buy fruits all year. You don't have to wait until the fruit is in season. Mm-hmm. And clearly, you know, if you're buying a fruit that's out of season, it's traveled a long way. And it's, you know, you hear stories about oranges getting harvested before they're ripe and then getting sprayed orange. And I I heard a a study where they actually found an orange that had zero vitamin C in it. Mm. I mean, it's almost laughable, but, you know, those are little things we can do as well. So I, I try and make a point. I mean, when I was in Spain, it was a bit of a different story because the fruit was coming not quite from source, but it wasn't traveling a long way. But in England, you know, the, the fruit well, it's fairly terrible. And again, you don't know it until you come from the outside. When I used to come visit my parents when I lived in Spain, you know, I suddenly realized, oh, this fruit tastes horrible. <laughs> yeah. What other small actions do you think on a daily basis could people do? I'm having to keep my voice down because I have no idea whether my neighbors can hear us. But anyway, <laughs> this is too good a conversation to stop. So if you don't mind it's carrying on. 
Let me you know when mind. you have to go. Yeah, if you don't uh, mind carrying on, I don't care. I haven't got an early class, so. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Well, um, um, go on. Yeah, I wholeheartedly resonate with that idea that the most important thing we can do is the daily votes of where we put our time, energy, attention, efforts, money, etc. More so than checking a box once every four years or pulling yeah. a lever every every few years for some political candidate. I'm very much a, a, an adherent to what it is that you're doing in your own life. And I think there is absolutely no one size fits all. Again, everyone has their own interests and abilities. For me personally, I one way or another have lucked into having this platform where I can reach tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, occasionally millions of people mm. with my message. It's absolutely flabbergasting to me. So I am making absolutely the most of my English education that I think I possibly could to try to convey this information in a way that hopefully resonates with other people. But I re recognize not everyone is so inclined or so interested, but everyone has something. Obviously, people who are interested in programming, for example, there's, there's no end to the the ways that you could employ your coding abilities for good contributing to open source products uh, projects for creating alternative platforms alter alternatives to youtube for example which i consistently and constantly denigrate because i, I do see it as a, a growing threat of information monopolization so someone who's yeah. into coding could do that someone who's into to music can put this into a musical form that will will be able to reach people that i wouldn't be able to reach by presenting my long, boring, dry, dusty documentaries. No, you can put it into music and people can get a message from that music that they might otherwise not hear. Someone who's into finance, for example, might have an outlet from within the belly of the beast to try to use their abilities to steer things in a different direction. Again, I couldn't even begin to articulate it, but I think everyone can do that in their own life, in their own way. But certainly, I mean, again, that also extends to the personal beyond what you do for a living, but also, as you say, gardening, just mm. starting to cultivate something from the earth is not only valuable, obviously, for the literal fruit that you're gaining from that, but also from the process of re-engaging with the soil and hopefully connecting then into the community around you with other people who are doing that so that you can trade with other people or you can go to the farmer's market and find out who is doing this in your area. You can start to connect into the local economy that way. Anything that you can do to in any way, not completely 100% go off grid and live on bugs and rainwater in the middle of nowhere, but to start to connect to the, the world around you more so than living through the mediated experience of online, where increasingly we are just going to be consumers living in our little boxes, only interacting with people online and ordering everything from some major conglomerate that will be then delivered yeah. to your doorstep from some factory where it was produced. And you'll never have any connection to anything real again. I really do see that as one of the big threats to humanity going forward is our disenfranchisement from our natural inheritance of the earth and the abundance of the earth that we are increasingly being disconnected from. Yeah. And I mean, even more simple than that is just when you wake up in the morning, just take some time. <laughs> Don't turn on your phone mm. and, you know, have some contemplation time. I mean, let's also acknowledge that it isn't our responsibility to get other people to do anything or to change. That has sure. to come from within. Sure. And that's the fundamental thing that I think is the most difficult for people to really accept, especially when they're in this alternative information space and they want to get their friend or family or whatever mm. to understand and to take this seriously. 
And I get this every single day. Uh, there's always people asking, well, what can I do? What, yeah. what can I send this to my friend or whatever? And I understand that, obviously. But the idea that it is our responsibility to get other people to change, I think, yeah. approaches it from the wrong angle. There has to be that desire within that person. And conversely, we can sit here on our high horse while we have the truth that we're going yeah. to tell to this person. <laughs> Without any self-awareness that, hey, maybe we don't have the full perspective. Maybe this yeah. person who I'm denigrating as one of these asleep you know, NPCs or whatever, maybe they have something to share with me that will broaden my understanding of the world. And I see very little room for that in the online discussion space. Let's put it that way, where everyone is 100% right all the time. And if you don't mm. believe everything I believe, you're a shill. The division that is taking place in society and is amping up as a result of the online conversations that happen is much to our detriment, I think. I mean, I've, um, if I've got one thing to thank COVID for, I've more or less quit social media completely other than to Yay. promote, to promote, yeah, other than to, pro to promote my yeah. podcast, I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably had a period. The first time I actually talked with Julian, and uh, hi to Julian, by the way. I'm sure he's listening. You better be. <laughs> first, <laughs> he and I, I've been on his show five or six times, and we've done long shows, and then we we ended up talking for about an hour, or an hour and a half after the show. So he and I, we've never met in the flesh. We've had awesome <laughs> amounts of conversation. Anyway, yeah, the first time I was on his show, which was, I think, 2014, I'll admit I was a bit gung-ho you know i was kind of oh i've got this information how do i turn everybody on but i kind of got over that a long time ago really and i think now i just have an instinct like i'm sure you do i just have an instinct to share information with people i don't really calculate it at all I, like i was saying earlier i mean i think there are certain techniques and one of them is just not to preach and to to kind of say you know oh i heard this you know isn't this a bit strange you know that kind of thing Having said that, Go and on. I understand what you're saying, but having said that, I think there are people who do respond better to the aggressive in your face. No, look at this. Look at this information. Oh, there are people so? who will yeah. be turned off by that. And there are people who would be better at conveying the information in that way. My calculation at the end of the day always comes to you have to be authentically you and mm. Here's how I would frame that. So, for example, earlier you brought up the specter of Alex Jones. And if people actually do go back and listen to my first several episodes or several dozen episodes even of the Corporate Report podcast, I actually don't recommend they do that because I think my production standards were <laughs> left a lot to be desired at the time, yeah. etc. But if you do, you will notice there were a lot of clips of Alex Jones back in those days. Mm -hmm. And that's because Alex Jones was definitely one of those voices that I was listening to when I was first getting into this information. His conversations, his guests, his documentary. Valuable information that I learned from there, and I would never dismiss that or poo-poo it. Yeah. Obviously, I am not a listener of Alex Jones at this point. I think the Alex Jones of 2021 is vastly different than the Alex Jones of 2007. But at any yeah, rate, yeah. I understand. I've always understood why people would be turned off by that big, bombastic personality, the Barnum and Bailey carnival huckster kind of thing, and that yeah. personality. Having said that, it obviously worked on me to some extent. I thought it was captivating enough and he had enough information to back up what he was saying that clearly I got something productive out of it. So here's another aspect of that. In one of my first podcast episodes, I remember recording uh, one segment where <laughs> I self-consciously tried to do some sort of Alex Jones style rant <laughs> and I recorded it and I listened back to it and I thought, that sounds ridiculous. That did not sound like me at all. All. So I re-recorded it as me, 
speaking in my own voice. And from that point, I've never thought or questioned about it. I have to be me. The way I speak and the way I convey the information is me. It's authentically me. Because if I tried to be something else, it would sound ridiculous. It would sound wrong. Mm. So if I had any advice to people who were looking to convey information to other people, it's just be authentically you. Do not be afraid to speak what you know. Don't over strategize and, oh, I better not tell them this or just speak what you know and be confident in what you are are confident in. Let's put it that way. Have room for skepticism and, and humility and doubt and realizing you don't know everything and be open to hearing alternative arguments, but yeah. speak your truth. I, I agree. Don't be proselytizing like it's your duty to mm. save the masses from their ignorance or something like that. I think that's just setting yourself up for a, a lot of failure, essentially. Everyone has their own particular way of conveying information, and there will be someone out there who will be perceptive or receptive to the way that you are putting that information out there. Right, it may not right. be necessarily your intended target of your, your rant or whatever you're doing that's authentically you, but someone will be receptive to that, and you will be able to reach them in a way that I couldn't, given my mm. demeanor. And mm. I think everyone acting authentically as to who they are will reach different people in different ways. That's a real organic movement of people who are doing something rather than, now everybody, let's all talk like this. Yeah, I understand. All right, we're going to do about another 10 minutes. So I'd like to talk about the Beatles. I'd like to lighten this all up. Not that it's been a heavy conversation, but... Uh, we were chatting before we started recording and I was very impressed with your knowledge. I don't know whether it's all been garnered from Glass Onion on John Lennon or perhaps <laughs> you knew something before, but uh, let, let me just ask you a couple of questions. I mean, we're not going to go on the, on the conspiratorial angle, but what is your Beatles fandom and, and where do you see them like now in 2021? So I guess my origin story would be that my parents are English. So I grew uh. up listening to being forced to listen to them on, you know, long road trips or whatever. So, of course, I was familiar with their music since I was a very little child and for many years had the, I think, natural child instinct to not like the music your parents liked. So I definitely didn't appreciate the Beatles until 96, was it? 95? When the anthology came out on TV. 95, yeah, yeah. And I remember at that time, I thought, oh, my parents will want to see this, so I'll record it. But it was back in the era of VCR technology, where if you're recording something, that's all you're going to watch. <laughs> you can't turn, turn the channel while you're recording. So I ended up watching the first episode and thought, well, you know, that's actually really interesting. And then from there, obviously, I suddenly started watching the rest of it and getting deeper into the story. And at that time, starting to realize, oh, there's this is a fascinating cultural phenomenon, if nothing else. And then starting to hear the music really for the first time. And oh, wow, Revolver is a really good album. Who knew? And that's, I think, how I got sent down that particular rabbit hole. And I remember at that time reading um, Revolution in the Head by Ian McDonald. Yeah. Ian McDonald. I was going to say McKellen, mm. but I'm like, isn't that a Jack? <laughs> That's an actor. Um, uh, yeah. And I remember at that time being put off by how it, it seemed such a pro Paul anti John work. I thought it's, you know, this is just musical analysis, but it's really taking a very anti John. <laughs> Even uh. the chords he was choosing in the song were so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I was, I was definitely a, I have always been a John fan, and John was the true artist and all of that. The major change that has happened in recent years, I don't know when I got on my last latest Beatles kick, which has lasted probably about a decade, I would say. Mm. Uh, anyway, several years that I've really been on a, a big Beatles kick. And the, the big change that's happened in that time is 
that at one time, if you had asked me, John or Paul, no question, not even a moment's hesitation. John, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Paul was that silly granny music. <laughs> at this point, now it would be a genuine pause and a little bit of humming and hawing and, well, John, but, you know, <laughs> because I have definitely come to a much, much deeper appreciation of Paul and his musical genius oh, i mean he was absolutely, absolutely no doubt a genius and obviously a perfect compliment for john in so many different ways and i haven't heard you mention it yet I've, i haven't listened to every glass onion but um mm -hmm. an incredibly fascinating documentary i'm not even sure i can call it that that appeared on youtube unfortunately in the past <laughs> few years i believe it's called understanding lennon mccartney it's a oh, five-hour yeah. exploration oh yes 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 i've devoured those fascinating because it no. digs up a lot of material that even as someone who has watched and listened to a lot of Beatles information, there yeah. was some stuff in there that I had not seen before. Very interesting. It gave me a very, very different appreciation of their relationship. The channel's called Breathless 345, yep. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Most of the Beatles in the, I call them the Beatles family rather than the community <laughs> of podcasters. They're all lovely people. Yeah, we're all aware of that. And uh, I did contact the person on Twitter and they sort of said, oh, I'm a bit busy or something. <laughs> I got slightly fobbed off, but oh, mm. I think I'll try you again. Know who that is? I really want to know. And I, I think they're just under Breathless on, on Twitter. Yeah. I don't know their name I, or anything. You get the sense that this must be someone with some sort of access to some sort of archival material. but I think it's all YouTube clips, actually. Mm. Maybe wrong or, or things from documentaries, yeah, but... Yeah, that's a great channel, isn't it? Yeah. He, that channel just did like a five-parter on Paul, didn't they? Yes, which yeah. I watched and yeah, which, again, I must admit, yeah, Paul is much less appreciated than than he should be. I, uh, the John the John myth has clearly overshadowed Paul, unfortunately. Yeah, if you want some amazing podcasts to listen to, I, I interviewed a lady today. I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> the podcasts I did with her are amazing, but they're not going to be coming out for a while because I've got a massive backlog. But Erin uh, Weber, W-E-B-E-R, she's appeared on a few shows and she did a book called The Beatles and the Historians. And it's a book about Beatles books and she's a historian. And, mm, yes. Uh, I haven't read the book, but uh, I've yeah. heard about it. Yeah. I know. I unfortunately I, I had to interview her without reading a book because there's certain prices that I won't pay, however mm. good the book is. You yeah. know, it's <laughs> taking the Mickey. But um, yeah, oh, uh, someone else that I could recommend that I've only recently come across was a YouTuber. I believe his channel is something Pop Goes the Sixties. And oh, he's yeah, done yeah. some interesting dives recently into breaking down, for example, the uh, the argument between John and George during January 69, those sessions, and the infamous, uh, I'll play what you want, I'll play nothing at all. Oh, and, Paul and uh, George, yeah. Paul and George. And, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry, uh, Paul and George. And yeah. uh, going into things like that and really showing the context of things like that in a different way, which gave me an, a, a yet another new appreciation of that dynamic, including the fact that it really <laughs> seems to come across when you actually listen to the recordings just how passive-aggressive George is, and that yeah. you take one little clip like that and you think, oh, Paul being an asshole. But actually, Paul was very much, he seemed like he was really trying to work something out with George, but George yeah. was being very passive-aggressive. And it's interesting the way that the history can be skewed based on just taking little bits out of context like that. I mean, January 69 is a fantastic cycle. I have not listened to the tapes. Are they easily available online? <laughs> they were. Last year, someone started putting them on online and then Apple mm. took them down. As soon as they came online, I have to confess, I was ripping mm. the MP3s. 
and I got to January 25th. I got five days before the end before they were all taken down. Yeah. <laughs> and last summer, obviously, I had a bit of time on my hands. I, I listened to the whole lot, and I just find it fascinating. Everyone else said, oh, it's so boring. I think it's amazing. Oh, <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, me and uh, Vinny Caggiano, who I did the Beatles Conspiracy podcast with, and yeah, I, yeah. Uh, he's actually my guitar teacher. I talk to him every week. We oh. often talk about how absolutely mind-blowing it would have been to have been in the room when they're working on a song or when they're writing a song to be that fly on the wall to hear these songs taking shape and with in january 69 you can at least kind of hear that yeah yeah i mean uh some of the things on the nagger reels it's just the innocuous stuff that's so funny i mean the fact that you know mal evans their roadie yeah you know he's supposed to be all oh, this great friend of the beatles when I was listening to the Nagger Reels, the thing that annoyed me most was listening to George saying, Mao! Like every time he had like, you know, they had like a problem with his guitar. Mao, <laughs> do this for me. And then it turned out that from reading, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Doug Solpy book, which sort of goes day by day. And it's called Get Back the Beatles, Let It Be Disaster. Very good mm, book. No. Yeah. Uh, apparently Mal Evans had to ring them all up in the morning to, to get them up in the morning. You know, mm. if I was him, I'd go, you know, fucking use my French again. But, you know, yeah. you know. To be fair, I mean, I guess if that is where your bread is buttered. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I understand why. And I think, you know, there was some genuine affection, I think. Mm. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Mal Evans is fairly well established, actually co-wrote Fixing a Hole and um, to some extent, Sergeant Pepper, the song. And he actually took a cash oh, pay. Oh, right. Well, yeah. I, I know he came up where the title was inspired by Paul mishearing something, right? But I didn't know. Yeah, I think I think it was, there's a couple of stories. One that was, it was originally could be Dr. Pepper, and they changed it. And then the other one was that they were on a plane. Salt and, and pepper. Uh, salt and pepper, pepper, yeah, the condiments. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is the point at which I have to confess, I have not read a lot of Beatles books other than Lewis and, and McDonald and right, a few right. others. After having listened to Glass Onion podcast, I guess I'm going to have to read Goldman and Goldman. <laughs> yeah, you should once in your life. I, I just read Goldman in its entirety. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a nutcase. 700 and whatever pages. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think if, if you're going to read two, can I suggest read Coleman first and then try and read Goldman fairly soon after? Okay. And your mind will be blown by these opposite narratives. Mm. And I'd love yeah. you to tell me at some point in the future what you make of it. <laughs> you can ask me the infamous question. Yeah, the infinite the <laughs> Coleman Goldman continue. <laughs> all right, listen, this has been amazing. Thank you very much. I don't want to go all fanboy, but back in 2008, when I was listening to you, as we used to call you the calm Alex Jones. <laughs> because Alex Jones, I agree with you, he was something different in those days. But we always loved you as a, a calm antidote to the ranting and everything. And uh, Well, then I'm glad I was authentically myself and didn't try to emulate something I wasn't. Excellent. <laughs> and, um, do you still do film literature in the New World Order? To be honest, I haven't. I've done one edition on Aesop's Fables uh, since uh, my edition on... Sorry? I listened to that recently. Yeah, oh, great. yeah. yeah. Great. I, I was inspired because I was reading that to my boy every night. So I thought, hey, right. know, there's some good things in here. But I haven't done one other than that since I did American Tabloid, the James Elroy book. Right, right. Because I really did have an experience reading that book of viscerally understanding the way that a very complex plot could take place. And I really wanted to convey that idea to the audience. When you read this book, in the process of reading it, going through this book, you will start to understand how larger plots like this could function and what it really means. And I think there's some profound ideas in there. Clearly did not have any effect in convincing anyone to actually read the book 
every single comment I received was from people who I think from what they said, did not read the book and would not read the book and just wanted to tell me their own idea of what the JFK plot was really about, <laughs> completely missing the sort of the really important point that I wanted to convey in that. And that really got me to actually sort of existentially question what it was I was doing with that series. There were times when I was looking at a Hollywood movie or some you know silly book or something that it doesn't matter if you read it or see it. I was just trying to get a particular point out of it. Mm -hmm. um, but there were points where something like American Tabloid that really genuinely, I want people to read this book and to experience it. And I was wondering if the series was actually sort of having the opposite effect, giving people the impression, oh, I know what that book's about. Okay, whatever. I don't need to read it now, mm -hmm. which yeah. really got me to question what it was I was doing with that series. And I really haven't been able to overcome that. So until I find a way to think that I'm not having a, the opposite effect with that series, I'm not sure I'm going to continue with it. So they're kind of using it as a shortcut almost to actually absorb Yes, and I get it. You don't want to read a 600-page novel or something for a podcast. I get that. But I would like to think I would have the ability to at least convince some proportion of my audience that, no, this, this is worth your time and attention. Hmm. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much. If you ever want to do anything Beatle related, I'm always available. <laughs> and if you I, ever want uh, to... I will definitely keep that in mind. I've done it before. Um, I think my audience might be sick of it because most of my audience is probably not interested in the Beatles, but uh, I understand. And if yeah, it's want... my show. I do what I want. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you ever want to come on Glass Onion and talk about any aspect of John Lennon, open invitation. Absolutely. When I have something profound and important to say about it, I will absolutely <laughs> let you know. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. And um, yeah, all the best. Thank you. So that was my talk with James Corbett. Now, listeners to my podcast, Glass Onion on John Lennon, will know that I always include spoken intros and outros to each episode. I'm not going to get in the habit of doing that on Life and Life Only, and not for the moment anyway. But the reason I'm just doing a short outro is that James and I actually forgot to do the traditional thing at the end of podcasts, which is for the guest to give out the details of where they can be contacted. Forgive me, it was two o'clock in the morning when we finished, so yeah, my fault. Anyway, so James's work, he has a number of podcasts actually, but I think the central hub of all his work is the CorbettReport.com, and that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T. The podcast that he mentioned right at the end that he said he hasn't done for a while, Film Literature and the New World Order, is one that I'd particularly recommend, although I'd recommend all of his work, to be honest. And it's where he takes a film or a piece of literature which has specific themes to, let's call it global government or alternative information or how the world really works. As you heard in the talk, we were, we were a bit hesitant to know which tags or labels to use, you know. As I said before, I don't like really like the truth movement tag, but, you know, alternative information is a good one because it gets you away from the conspiracy theorist and conspiracy theory tag. Anyway, just a couple of other things that I'd like to comment on from our talk so since talking to James, I've watched the G. Edward Griffin, the Quigley Formula talk, and I'll put a link in the show notes. And I really would urge you, if you're at all interested in this kind of thing, to watch that. It's about an hour and 10 minutes and takes you systematically through how a conspiracy can, and in G. Edward Griffin's mind, did happen. And it is documented by a mainstream professor. And think to yourself, if you do choose to watch it, Imagine if this was on primetime TV and heavily promoted favorably by the media. Everyone would be talking about this. And in my opinion, the world could potentially change in one hour and ten minutes. As it is, probably a lot of people watch it. And I've noticed one thing, that essentially if you try to share alternative information to people that don't want to hear it, 
they will quickly find a way to discredit it, which is fascinating. You know, recently I've stopped using social media for anything other than to promote my podcasts, but I did share something about how COVID was being used and immediately somebody read the biography and picked a hole in the person without actually listening to what they said. And the other thing really to take away is the idea of um, propaganda being all around us every day. In fact, I included that in the title, Everyday Propaganda. And, you know, you could call it influence, perhaps. It's not always blatant propaganda, but the idea that all through our lives, if you have any contact with the outside world, really, you are continually being influenced, sometimes in blatant, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes by, I would say, you know, nefarious forces that do want to keep us a little bit stupid and an influence so that we buy products and generally comply. And as Austin Moore said in the last talk, you know, the, the level of compliance over the last year has been quite incredible. So something to bear in mind. And then the next talk I'm going to be doing is actually a reading of an essay I wrote a few years ago called Conspiracy Theory, A Powerful Phrase. And it's not actually specifically looking at conspiracy theories. It's looking at the phrase. It's just becoming more and more prevalent you know it's one of those things that gains in relevance so that will be the next episode so um thanks for listening to this talk thanks to james again for coming on the show and i'll see you very soon goodbye